hey, this is typically my week off, but I wanted to share something really cool with you. There's a new podcast that just came out and I've been gobbling it up. And I thought, hey, you might like it too. It's called The World's Greatest Con, and it's hosted by Brian Brushwood. The storytelling, narration, and production are fantastic, but Brian tells the story of what might be the world's greatest con, the scam that beats all scams, and it's mind-boggling. So what I'm going to do for you right now is play for you the entire first episode so you can check it out, and if you like it, go find World's Greatest Con podcast and subscribe for the rest of the episodes. Okay, here we go. I think I was 20 years old when this happened, and it was outside of a Home Depot parking lot. It was a white van, pulls up, dude jumps out in a vague uniform, not really a uniform, but the kind of jumpsuit that anyone from an exterminator to a Ghostbuster would wear. Spun this tale about how they had these studio monitors, high-end monitors that were supposed to go to a local strip club. I did know the strip club, so I knew that part wasn't a lie. And it seemed like it wasn't a lie that they were fancy monitors. I mean, they, they looked like big speakers. Dude even showed me a magazine article, pointed to a price that said $2,000 per unit. Told me a story about how they were supposed to be four ordered, but he had six instead and the rest were gonna be you know, shipped back. And I thought to myself, there is no way any of this is true. These are stolen speakers. And in that moment, I had already begun to rationalize. I was already thinking about sweet class warfare while getting ahead myself. Within 15 minutes, we both agreed on $300 for the pair of them. I went to the ATM with these assholes. I withdrew the money, gave them $300 and thanked them and then turned to my friend and mouthed the words, oh my God, because I had just stuck it to the man. I had just bought stolen studio monitors. And I was so freaking stoked. Brought them home, turned it up very loud. Very impressed with myself. Three weeks later, the girl I'm dating, I meet her brother. He's a student at law school. And I'm a bit shy about it, but I bring up the fact, I bring up the fact that I bought some speakers and I get to the part where I mentioned the white van and he nods and grins and says, oh wow, so you saw one of those guys. And I was like, what, one of those guys? What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah, those guys, they sell the garbage speakers, they're garbage, but they make you think they're stolen. And that's when I realized I'd gotten got. I'd let the fantasy overtake the reality. The reality was I was giddy at the prospect of sticking one to the man. The most beautiful thing about a con is how little the con man needs to do in the moment. He just has to set up the story because the person who's going to obliterate his morals for the fantasy that's me, and I won't find out for three weeks until I meet my girlfriend's brother. There's a common phrase in my line of work. You can't con an honest John. It's because the honest John is somebody in that situation wouldn't even consider letting his morals be compromised. Wouldn't even occur to him. He would walk right past it. How many of us are truly honest all of the time? 
Most of the effort of the con man goes into that first impression, the tableau. Sometimes it's a crisis or a fantasy. Whatever it is, it's personally tailored to you, the mark. I've spent a lifetime studying these schemes. Which really means I've spent a lifetime studying desires, those very urges that make us human. You know, when I'm hanging out, sometimes a few beers in, somebody will ask me, what is the world's greatest con? It's a good question. I don't know if this is it, but here's a pretty good place to start. It's 1943. Allied forces are about to land their first boots on mainland Europe. If you do it successfully, you could defeat the Nazis. Botch it, and you allow the fascist war machine to keep on rolling. In a smoke-filled London basement sits a gang of con men. Now, they don't call themselves con men, since they're in the British military and all, war. They're agents of deception, which, to be honest, is probably a better name than con men anyway. I'd like to be an agent of deception. Anyway, they got a plan, and if they pull this off, it will change the war. The British know that the Nazi expansion into the Eastern Front with Russia isn't going well. That means at the highest ranks of the German government, people need good news to bring the boss. That means the boss is eager to hear good news. So what if somebody fulfilled that fantasy, wrote that good news for them, put it in their hands in a way that makes them feel lucky to have it? Can't be a regular leak or a fake double agent. That's regular espionage. No one gets excited when the normal happens. That would just fall flat. Remember what we said about the tableau, all the effort into the first impression. This kind of good news? Good news that moves armies? No, 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 no. This has to be an act of God, the Lord himself, smiling on the fatherland. It needs to fall out of the sky. Literally, an officer of the Royal Marines is going to crash his plane in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Spain. His corpse is going to wash ashore. In his pockets will be a heartbreaking tale of young love, evidence of a vibrant life snuffed out too soon, and secret documents revealing the plans of the Allied forces. Those documents will be irresistible to the Nazi intelligence that happens to live on that shore. He'd be greatly rewarded for finding it. In fact, each rung of the ladder that passes it up the chain will be rewarded for finding it. The officer will be completely fictitious. The body, a corpse discarded by society. The documents, an intentional lie to devastate the German efforts. All of it to fool the ultimate mark. Someone who is most certainly not an honest John. Adolf Hitler. Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And this, this might be the world's greatest con. Hey, I'm Brian Brushwood, award-winning touring magician, creator of Scam School, Hacking the System, The Modern Rogue. I don't know where to begin. We could start with Winston Churchill, Joseph Go Go Goebbels, Goebbels, I never know how to say it. There's rat poison, there's submarines, 
There's learning what a smashed body looks like falling out of a plane. No, 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 no. I got it. All right. This is really a story about fooling Hitler, right? What if I told you that the man who's going to fool Hitler is none other than... The name's Bond. Right? James Bond. James freaking Bond is going to defeat Hitler. That's what's going to happen in this story. I mean, technically, it'll be James Bond author Ian Fleming, and it'll be him setting in motion a bunch of events that will eventually lead to Hitler being fooled. But here's the important part. Now, at this moment, it's May of 1939, and Ian Fleming is new to British intelligence. He's supposed to be filling out a list of outside-the-box ideas to fool the Nazis. All this crazy blue sky stuff. Stuff that isn't just recruiting double agents or gathering intelligence or putting out propaganda. He's supposed to be coming up with the kind of ideas that nobody would see coming. Now, at this point, Fleming has yet to become a published novelist. But he is reading avidly, voraciously, and in one of these books, he discovers the real star of the story. Now, in the book he read, the body of a dead paratrooper is found, and his pockets are full of all kinds of information, and the hero of the book is the guy who figures out that all of this information is totally bogus. It was designed to fool them. The information itself was a poison pill that was just too delicious not to swallow. You know, like a Trojan horse. In fact, here are Fleming's actual words about it, in which he had titled it, a very Ian Fleming title, a suggestion, not a very nice one. Quote, A corpse dressed as an airman with dispatches in his pockets could be dropped on the coast, supposedly from a parachute that has failed. I understand there is no difficulty in obtaining corpses at the naval hospital, but of course, it would have to be a fresh one. Now, Fleming isn't a con man but he definitely understands how the human mind works when it comes to theatrics. There's that feeling of electricity that runs through you when something out of the ordinary happens. There's that bizarre compulsion to be special. There's that moment that you feel the white hot spotlight on your life in that moment and you realize this is what will make or break me. It's that seductive logic that betrays you and it's all exploitable when you create the right event. For the record, Fleming loved the idea of a Trojan horse. Like, here's a quick side jag. He actually pitched at one point another version about a year later, and it's too awesome not to share. He called it Operation Ruthless. All right, for this one, you'll have to picture yourself as a low-level Nazi soldier. It's a boring night, and all of a sudden the radio crackles, and real excitement is happening. A Nazi plane has just gone down. You and your unit are going to go rescue them. This is what you've trained for. This is your moment to shine. You rush on out there, sure enough, burning wreckage, big old swastikas on the side, I'd imagine. You kick open the door, ready to free your fellow countrymen, and you see a bunch of rifles aimed right at your chest. As they begin to fire on you, as you go down, you find it curious that they're all speaking English. British. These guys are British flying in a Nazi plane. They crashed a plane on purpose so that you would come rescue them. And now you're going to die. As consciousness begins to slip away, as the world is going black, I suppose there's some kind of pride you can feel. All this for me? Hell yeah! But no. As you drift away, the last thing you see is the soldiers step over your body to grab the vaunted Enigma machine. 
the single most important device in your entire arsenal. The ability for the Germans to communicate with complete impunity is now compromised. And it's all because you wanted to be a hero and rescue your fellow soldiers. That's your last thought before you die. And that's what it feels like to be the sucker. Or at least it would have been if the plan ever got approved, which naturally it wasn't. All this plan needed was a German plane and some soldiers just crazy enough to give it a try. But the higher-ups wouldn't approve it. Too dangerous. Too high risk. And I get it, man. Concepts that seem perfectly can't miss in an office are going to run into real-world problems during the execution. In magic and in storytelling, I think of these as chaos vectors. Leadership might balk at putting top soldiers on a plane designed to crash. The plane might actually legitimately get shot down, or they might lose the firefight with the Nazis. There are too many ways a plan like this can go wrong. And of course, the military, they're all about risk assessment. It's Fleming's job to push against it. And so he did. Fleming went on to have a brilliant military career. In fact, a few years after this plan gets rejected, he starts working on another new ambitious framework to fool the Nazis in Spain called, wait for it, yes, Operation Goldeneye. There's so much of the Bond DNA that comes from his real-life experience. For example, the Gadget Master Q. We're going to meet the actual guy that he based the character on. But let's go back to that first idea. The one where the military fills a corpse with lies and drops them out of a plane to fool the enemies. That idea was written by Fleming in something called the Trout Memo. It's called the Trout Memo because his boss loved trout fishing. As a matter of fact, this is the boss Fleming would later base James Bond's boss on, a.k.a. M. So M loves fishing. That's the important part. Calls it the Trout Memo. And he writes these words, quote, The trout fisher casts patiently all day. He frequently changes his venue and his lures. If he's frightened of fish, he may give the water a rest for a half an hour, but his main endeavor to attract fish by something he sends out from his boat is incessant. Sound familiar? Just like a shy trout, this idea sat in a file cabinet for years, waiting for not only a time to use it, but the kind of desperate moment when the guys upstairs would be willing to take that risk. A moment when they needed a miracle. Okay, buckle in. We're at the Casablanca Conference. It's January 1943. And we are for the first time in a while, in happy times for the Allies. They just curb-stomped Hitler in North Africa. I don't think that was a real phrase back then, but imagine that. This is the first time America has been part of the land war. Everyone's pretty pumped. They're kicking a lot of butt. But then again, these are savvy military men. You got Prime Minister Winston Churchill. You got the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And they know that you're not just going to string one win after another, right? They're a good team that plays well, but they're already thinking, how do we play better next time? And that's the question, that next time, because they have to figure out at their first meeting after the big win in North Africa, where are we going to go next? That's up to them. That's at their discretion. 
So the Allies have to choose where they're going to attack next, but the only problem is that the most obvious choice is, well, obvious. Sicily. You know, the soccer ball that the boot of Italy is kicking. Given that the Allies just won in North Africa, that would be the closest, most populated landing spot, so it'd be easy to get to. It would give them access to Europe and control of all the Mediterranean shipping lines, and that's going to be key for their resupply as they push on north. Imagine the energy in this room. The biggest egos in the entire free world, all in one place, each one convinced they know the one true path to save freedom itself. In the middle of this chaos, Winston Churchill jumps up and shouts out, you would have to be a bloody fool to not think it was Sicily. All right, cool. So how about we attack the Balkans? I mean, Hitler will be expecting Sicily anyway. You could sacrifice less to get mainland Europe. I mean, it's farther east than Sicily, which means next place you'd have to take anyway would be Italy. But either way you go, you better hope Hitler bites. Because here's what they're really afraid of. The possibility of the Nazi stalemate. Quick history refresher. Hitler already stated his intention to invade the Soviet Union back in 1939. Like a lot of things in World War II, it stemmed from the lingering bitterness that Germany had towards how things worked out in World War I. Germany lost territory. Germany remembered how they'd starved at the end of the war. Hitler was determined not to let that happen again. In fact, Hitler says, quote, Everything I undertake is directed against the Russians. If the West is too stupid and too blind to grasp this, then I shall be compelled to come to an agreement with the Russians, beat the West, and then after their defeat, turn against the Soviet Union with all my forces. I need the Ukraine so they can't starve us out, as happened in the last war. After an initial non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, Hitler followed through on his threat and marshaled a blitzkrieg against Russia, believing their entire society would come crumbling down. Spoiler alert, it didn't. By the end of the war, the Eastern Front would account for 30 million of World War II's 75 million estimated deaths. In 1942, the Nazis suffered their biggest defeat in Stalingrad. The Nazis had lost in North Africa to the Allies, and now they found themselves in a quagmire in the Soviet Union. In 1942, the Allies did know one thing that kept Hitler up at night. They knew that he needed the Balkan states to the east of Italy as a key resupply of raw materials for their war machine. And if Hitler was concerned about the Balkans, then the Allies could exploit that worry. In fact, if they played their cards right... They could even have a credible false landing spot for a completely fictitious invasion. Now, remember what it's like in that room. History, we of course already know how things worked out for the Nazis. Not great. But in that room, think about the most terrifying outcome in their minds. The idea of a Nazi stalemate, a meat grinder, and millions upon millions dead with no end in sight. In that room, the Allies know whatever they decide to do, it has to be hard and it has to be unexpected if it's going to be decisive. Because if it's not decisive, you get stuck in that meat grinder. It's fool the Nazis 
or possibly live with them for the rest of your life. So two things are decided. First one's called Operation Husky. They are going to take Sicily. Just makes too much sense. The second is called Operation Barkley, a misinformation campaign designed specifically to make the Nazis believe that they are not going to take Sicily and instead attack the Balkans. When it came to Barkley, anything was on the table in terms of ideas. No stone unturned. The call goes out. Everybody in the intelligence community needs to be cranking out the proposals on how to throw Hitler off their scent. The time was right to launch one of the most audacious Trojan horses of all time. So this is normally where an ad would go, but we don't have any mattresses to sell you. But what we do have is even better. Do you want to feel like an actual spy? Do you want to feel like somebody who knows how to escape from police-issued handcuffs, pick locks, solve impossible puzzle boxes? We have all of that stuff and so much more. You'll be directly supporting the show if you head on over to con, that's C-O-N, dot scamstuff.com. It's run by us. It is of us. You'll be directly giving us money and making sure we get to keep on telling you about the world's greatest cons. That's con.scamstuff.com. All right, Trojan horse. I keep saying it, not explaining it. I'm not saying that you fell asleep during Greek history class. Let's just say I did. Here are the cliff notes. So we're back at the Trojan Wars. There's a 10-year siege by the Greek army against the free city of Troy, and Odysseus has a plan. He's going to present a massive wooden horse as a gift to end the decades-long stalemate. The horse, being the symbol of Troy, leadership of the city would be delighted at the sight of a trophy to their own brilliance and grit. Yo, let that thing in. We love horses. We're Troy. Now, what they don't know is that our boy Odysseus and a cadre of elite fighters would be inside. Once it was accepted inside the city gates, they'd wait for the middle of the night, jump out, slaughter everyone. And according to legend, that's exactly what happened. Won the war for Greece. Now, closer to what we're talking about is what military circles, the idea of giving your enemy a gift that'll later kill them, they call that the Haversack Ruse, named for an incident in the First World War. And in that one, a British intelligence officer left a messenger bag, or haversack if you're fancy and British, filled with fake intelligence for his enemies. They took it, and the Allies won the war. Haversack ruse becomes famous, something that's now known in military strategy. But it's so crazy how the idea never changes. The Trojan horse lives on today. Here, for example, I got a buddy of mine who used to work as an aide in Congress. Like most young people, you want to get free drinks when you can, right? I mean, I kind of built a career on it. But he figures out quite cleverly that there are these embassy mixers and he's able to get in. He feels like he pulled a fast one over on the man. The man in this case being, I don't know, insert your favorite superpower of choice. So glad to have you here, Mike. Uh, we actually Not only is he getting free drinks, but they're also giving away tchotchkes, little gifts, branded USB thumb drives. How cool is that? There's this moment that my buddy, half drunk, looks around the room. There's his buddy who works at the Pentagon. There's somebody from the majority whip. But the point is, he realizes these are power players. Even if you're too suspicious to plug in the drive yourself, 
That doesn't mean your kid's not going to pick it up. It doesn't mean that you might not forget for just one moment just to transfer one file. Each one of those is a scratch-off lottery ticket that could result in a virus injecting a foreign power at the heart of our military. My buddy, he always drank the booze, tossed the drives. Smart guy. You have to know where the traps are to avoid them. And more to the point, know how effective they really could be, how ruinous they could be. Which is how we meet the man who's going to free our idea and make it a reality. have this forgotten plan to drop a plane into the ocean filled with sensitive data, right? And part of the reason it should work is because the Nazis are starting to get a little bit desperate and they would love any advantage they can get. The only thing that stands in the way of this thing getting approved is the brass being willing to, you know, have some brass, take a chance in extraordinary conditions. And then this happens. In September of 1942, a plane carrying French and British military really did crash off the coast of Spain, killing everyone on board. And among the wreckage was accurate correspondence between the Allied forces revealing the true movements of Dwight Eisenhower himself. All this sound familiar? We got the body, we got the crash. But unfortunately, when the body of their man was returned to the Brits, they were able to determine that the sensitive letter on his person had been unopened. A notebook on one of the French officers was copied and transmitted to Nazi intelligence, but they dismissed it as disinformation. So the plan we followed this entire time actually happened in real life, and it didn't work. Nazis didn't take the bait. They didn't buy it. They called it misinformation. And it was the real stuff. Add to that the natural hesitancy of the military and the fact that this plan and others like it have been rejected time and time again for years now. That's the challenge facing the two men who represent the best last chance to make this Trojan horse work. Our first hero is Charles Chumley. He's the head of the 20 committee. The job of the 20 committee, they run double agents. They feed them information, taking in what they've learned, leveraging other people to join the fight, either willingly or not. The reality of espionage is it's a lot of paperwork. Fleming was actually really smart to add all the drinking, sex, shooting to the Bond books. But the 20 Committee wasn't a totally uncreative endeavor. Chumley and his team, they created all these totally fictitious double agents. Why would you create fake double agents? Think of it like this. Let's say there's a German version of the 20 Committee, and they intercept a full list of your agents. Do you want them to have the correct list? The complete list that tells them exactly how many you have? Or what they're saying? No, of course not. So you make fake double agents. You give them lives and motivations. And yes, I am certain that all day, every day, as a nine to five job, it seemed like a very silly storytelling gig. But 
These silly stories could be the difference between an entire operation going down or staying alive. If the Nazis spend any time chasing down a fake agent or changing their plans to avoid a fake agent succeeding, that would be a minor win. Every second they spend chasing phantoms is a second they're not doing actual Naziing. Chumley knows the value of a fraud. He knows how damaging false information can be. But think about it, we've all lived this. Remember how stupid meeting up with someone was before cell phones? You would miss them by 15 minutes, both of you would waste an hour standing in the wrong spot? Do you remember how dumb the world was when Siri didn't correct all of our clocks every daylight savings time? Bad information costs time, money, energy, and in war, lives. And now with Operation Barkley, Chumley knows the Allies need something special. A deception that's not going to be some run-of-the-mill hoax. It's going to take something crazy. He's going to need that trout memo. I mean, it's perfect. The 20 Committee is built to feed misinformation. This could be the ideal delivery method. This could be that moment that the perfect idea hits at the perfect time. I mean, come on, the same risk-averse top brass that rejected Fleming's other awesome ideas would surely reject this one too. Still, Chumley believes in this idea. So he pitches it. He calls it Operation Trojan Horse, for reals. Not exactly a shining example of originality, but here's how it reads. Quote, A body is obtained from one of the London hospitals. The lungs are filled with water and documents are disposed in an inside pocket. The body is then dropped by a coastal command aircraft. On being found, a supposition in the enemy's mind may well be that one of our aircraft has either been shot or forced down and that this is one of their passengers. <sighs> I don't know. As an outsider, I want this to work so bad. But to be honest, as a betting man, this pitch is a mixed bag. On the one hand, yes, we do know that Nazis can be fed false information, we also know they walk right past it when you do. We've watched this exact plan happen. We know the top brass is risk averse, but we know that the fate of the free world depends on this. And this is the moment that word comes down from on high. Chumley gets the word. The plan is rejected. Back to the drawing board. Well, while it is rejected, it does get one final chance for survival. The powers that be, they gave Chumley the resources to prep the plan for one final approval. God, could you imagine that? Through the entire life cycle of this idea, it's been slapped down again and again and again, and now you finally have to get it fully prepped, and at the 11th hour, you find out whether or not it lives or dies? But along with this opportunity, comes somebody who can add exactly what's missing. I mean, just think of the name that Chumley came up with, Trojan Horse. Not only is it bland, doesn't even do the job of a code name. I wonder what Operation Trojan Horse is up to. Probably not the thing it literally describes. Yes, Chumley is an expert at making espionage a reality, and he is artistic enough to know how to highlight somebody else's creativity. But we need that spark, baby. We need somebody who could build that tableau. We need that seduction. We need to make this something that the Nazis can't look away from. How about an artistic drill sergeant 
is going to take this promising pipsqueak to a war-changing ruse. That man is our second hero. Meet Ewan Montague, a civilian who volunteered to work with British naval intelligence, a Jew who sent his family to live in America during the war, knowing full well what would happen to them if Hitler ever toppled London. Ewan's a lot like Fleming. He fancied himself a writer, and more importantly, he knew that dropping a corpse into the sea and hoping some dry paperwork made it to Hitler's desk was not going to happen. Not only do you have to sell it, but you need the mark to sell themselves. We're back in that parking lot. We're looking at that van, but we're thinking about those speakers. In magic, we say the big move covers the small move. The small move is that somebody walks up and asks if you want to buy some speakers. That's weird and dumb and should make you suspicious but it's covered by the big move, the social injustice, the fact that your day just got interesting. The big move covers the small move, and Ewan knows this. Chomley and Montague spend three months building not just a person, but a fascinating person with a rich backstory, creating a very, very big move to cover the very small move of a few envelopes of intel. Now, to repitch this to the top brass, Chumley and Montague, they're going to have to find a body. And it's going to have to be in good condition. Good enough that a medical professional can at least give it a cursory glance. Hell, maybe even a full autopsy. But the body would have to move from London to wherever they could drop it. Then it has to be found by the right people. Those right people need to see evidence of a spectacular story. The big move covering the small move. This is a key. It's got to be a doozy. Romance, heartbreak, valor, tragedy, dazzling and engrossing everybody who runs across it. This razzle-dazzle has to be enough to prime the right people for the hook. The misinformation would have to be even more impressive than the fake backstory. Not just wartime correspondence. It would have to come from the right level of allied military leadership. It would have to be written by them so that nobody was suspected as being a fraud because buried in all of this big, big movement is the small move, the most important move, the one that changes worlds. The lie that the allied invasion of Sicily is the fraud and that the real attack will come for the Balkans. The desperation of the Nazis meeting that gift, that could turn the war. The perfect mark, primed for the perfect con. This isn't a haversack ruse. It's far more elegant than Operation Ruthless and far more sophisticated than Operation Trojan Horse ever hoped to be. No, 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 no. This idea has finally earned a name designed to live in infamy. Operation Mincemeat, reporting for duty. Although fully formed, Mincemeat now had to do what none of its predecessors could. It had to get the sign off. On April 14th, 1943, the top brass reviewed mincemeat. Unlike all the previous incarnations, they didn't see a bunch of loose ideas. They saw the actual machinery. They saw the corpse. They saw the method they'd use to get it ashore, the shore that they'd drop it on. But most importantly, they reviewed those documents they noted the authenticity, how realistic the correspondence was from each of the commanding officers. They read about the life of our fictitious soldier. And just like that, it was approved. Only to face one final test. It's two days later. Representative has to go meet with Prime Minister Winston Churchill 
Churchill's in freaking bed, wearing a gown, smoking a cigar. The representative patiently explains everything. It is entirely possible that all of this, the writing, the backstory, the presentation, the forensics, the smashing, the faking of the plane, all of that could result in a body that gets returned without a single envelope opened. Winston Churchill needs to understand that all of this could be for nothing. And after he hears every detail, Winston Churchill says, well, in that case, we'd have to get the body back and give it another swim. And in that moment, a dead man came to life to become a war hero. The con artists in the 20 committee were about to unleash months of painstaking work into the sea. How they did it, where they planned to drop it, and how the man who never was helped cripple the fascists. Next time on The World's Greatest Con. This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Produced by Dog and Pony Show Audio, special credit goes to Operation Mince Meat by Ben McIntyre, the source of most of the material we have. By the way, of course, you've got questions. We want to give you answers, so send them in right now to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. In the next episode of World's Greatest Con, how do you write when the main character doesn't know his lines, doesn't know who he is, and doesn't even understand how the world works. How do you shape a reality that forces a mark to do exactly what you want? That's coming up next episode. We'll see you then. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.